We begin a new sermon series in the Apostle Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter. And so my sermon text this evening is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the opening verses, but I'll read the first in this opening chapter to kind of fill out the, uh, the context. But let us hear God's holy word from 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray for the Lord to bless the preaching of his word this evening. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have loved us in Christ. We do thank you, Heavenly Father, that you abide with us. And we ask, Lord, that you would abide with us this evening as we Uh, open the word. We pray that by your spirit you would cause your word to find a lodging place in our souls and to bear spiritual fruit in our lives. We ask that you would make us open and attentive. May we meditate upon your word day and night. May we take these truths to heart and may your spirit bless the word as it goes forth. Illuminate us, enlighten us by your spirit as we consider these truths and open our minds to behold wondrous things from your word that we may grow thereby and glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. If you're following along in your sermon outline, and there are sermon outlines, at least there were before the service, available in the foyer, uh, you'll notice there's three key words to listen for this evening. I'd encourage the children to especially listen up for these words and pay attention to them and maybe even count the number of times I say these words in my sermon. The words are pilgrim, persecution, and holy. The title of my sermon this evening is God's Pilgrim People. Well, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, almost everyone at one time or another in their lives faces what some have called an identity crisis. If you have an identity crisis, that you wonder to yourself things such as, who am I? What is my identity? What kind of person am I? And what kind of a person that does God intend for me to be? You see, 
One of the deepest yearnings that we humans have as those who have been created in God's image is a hunger for meaning and significance, a hunger for purpose, a hunger for significance. There is a deep yearning in the human spirit to know that our lives count for something. And there are many evidences in our world today of this universal hunger for significance. One of the evidences of this hunger is the observation that that people are prone to identify with groups that represent various causes or lifestyle identities. Now, because we are sinful and fallen creatures, we naturally have a tendency to seek our significance in groups or organizations or causes that are fundamentally ungodly and dishonoring to the cosmic lordship of Jesus Christ. For example, many non-Christian college students at secular universities will often latch on to certain identity groups or causes or campus organizations which assume an anti-Christian, anti-biblical worldview. This was the case when I was a college student many, many moons ago. At the college where I went to school many years ago, there was a particular feminist group on campus which was very active in promoting the pro-abortion point of view. Uh, and uh, they would, for example, they would sign petitions and encourage their fellow students to sign petitions uh, supporting their cause. Uh, they would participate in pro-abortion rallies. And I can even recall them taking at least one trip to Washington, D.C. for the purpose of supporting uh, what they would call a woman's right to choose, i.e., a woman's right to terminate the life of her unborn child. And from my point of view, I, I noticed that the students who were involved in this group seem to have a real sense of purpose. They seem to take great satisfaction in their identity uh, as feminists. They had a real sense of belonging to a community which had a cause that was greater than themselves. They took pride in their identity as feminists and it seemed to me that those of us students who couldn't be sympathetic with their cause we were sort of looked down upon by them as ignorant, unenlightened outsiders, sort of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who just didn't get it. At least that's how I was made to feel. Well, this hunger for significance, this hunger for significance is manifested in many ways, and that's just one example. This hunger for significance for an identity is also evidenced in our inner cities, where young people from often broken or dysfunctional or abusive homes seek the significance and identity that they cannot find in their home life by joining gangs. For many of our young people in the inner cities, the gang essentially becomes a substitute family. And the bonds of loyalty to this substitute family can sometimes be so strong that some of them are even willing to kill in order to maintain their identity and their status as loyal gang members. And the list could go on and on. Oh, friends, the longing for a sense of significance and stability that comes from having an identity, this remains a powerful motivator to action for the human race. Even though as fallen sinners, our natural disposition is to suppress the truth of God and to suppress our identity as God's image bearers and instead to seek shallow, sinful, and destructive substitutes for our true identity as creatures and image bearers of our sovereign creator God. But dear friends, the good news of the gospel teaches us that if the Lord Jesus Christ is your savior from sin, then there is no need for any of us 
to have an identity crisis. If you are in Christ, you have no reason for an identity crisis. Christian, your identity is fundamentally in Christ and with the people of God. You belong to God's forever family. You are in Christ. Christian, you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his beloved blood-bought body, the church. Dear ones, our baptism is our identity marker, God's pledge to us believers that we have been united to Christ in his death and burial and resurrection, and therefore we have been called to live in newness of life as followers, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, you are a child, an adopted, blood-bought son or daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. God is your loving Father. Christ is your elder brother. The Church of Jesus Christ is your nurturing mother. And you belong to the forever family of God, the body of Christ, the church which our Savior purchased at the cost of his own precious lifeblood. The purpose to which we have been called is the highest and loftiest purpose to which any preacher could ever be called. And that is the purpose of, to use the words of our shorter catechism, the purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are summoned by our Savior to take up the banner of the greatest cause of all, the cause of spreading the gospel and discipling the nations in his name. In relation to this present world, we are called to be salt and light, preservatives in a very dark and unsavory world. As soldiers of Christ, we get our marching orders from Jesus Christ, the captain of our salvation, The battle plan for our engagement in this spiritual warfare is revealed to us in God's infallible word, the Bible. Oh, believer, the only way to be successful, though, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ in this greatest of all causes is not only to know the Lord's battle plan as revealed in his word. First and foremost, you must be confident of your identity in Christ. And this is why the Apostle Peter begins his first epistle, his first letter, by reminding his readers, his original readers, these persecuted Christians to whom he wrote this letter, of their identity as believers. And friends, what this inspired Apostle Peter writes to these first century believers, the Holy Spirit through Peter says to you and to me as God's people, we who confess Jesus Christ as the divine Son of God, and own him as our very own Lord and Savior. Peter tells us that we in the church of Jesus Christ are God's pilgrim people. Let's consider what that means. This is the first point in your sermon outline. Let us consider the identity of God's pilgrim people. Look at verse 1. Now, as is customary in these ancient letters, the signature of the author comes first, and then the identity of the recipients comes next. When we, uh, you know, letter writing I know is not a very common practice nowadays, but, but in more contemporary times, if you write someone an actual letter, rather than just send them a text or something, you'll usually say, dear so-and-so, so you address the recipient first, and then comes the content of your letter, and then you sign your name at the end. But it was sort of the opposite in ancient letter-writing practice. And so Peter identifies himself, the author identifies himself as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then we are told to whom this epistle, this letter, is written. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, 
to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and so forth. Now, let me just comment very briefly on the author of this letter, Peter. Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. That word apostle in the Greek has a more generic meaning, but it also has a more specific meaning. Generically speaking, an apostle is simply a messenger, a spokesman. But when it comes to Christ's apostles in the narrower sense of the term, apostles were God, uh, Christ's chosen official representatives. They spoke in his name and with his authority. And one of the things that was necessary to qualify you as an apostle, one of these 12 apostles, was that you had to be a witness of the resurrected Jesus. You saw Jesus after his resurrection. And indeed, the apostle Peter was uh, a witness to Christ's resurrection. And so Peter writes this letter not, not simply in his private capacity as a private Christian. He is writing this letter, this epistle, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so this letter opens up on a note of authority, divine authority. For in writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter is writing on behalf of his master. He is writing as, as, as one of Christ's chosen and appointed official spokesmen. And the words that he writes, the things that he says, are the very words of Jesus Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit, communicated through him as an apostle. You know, sometimes the liberal theologians will say, well, you know, we, we, we want to follow the teachings of Jesus, such as you find in the Sermon on the Mount or what have you, and I'm not so sure about Paul or Peter, what they have to say. You know, I'll, I'll follow Jesus. I'm not so sure about Peter or Paul. But that is nonsense, because Jesus speaks through Peter and Paul when they write in their apostolic capacity, and we have their inspired writings in the canon of Holy Scripture. So as we uh, open up our study of Peter, we need to realize that Peter writes in his capacity, his official capacity, as a divinely chosen spokesman, apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore what he writes is binding upon the conscience of the church. But who does he write to? Well, as it is translated in the English Standard Version, which is the translation I'm using to preach from this evening, he says, to those who are, what? Elect exiles. Exiles. What's he talking about? The NIV translates it to God's elect strangers in the world. The New King James Version translates it to the pilgrims of the dispersion. It is possible that the least problematic translation may be something along the lines of to the chosen sojourners of the dispersion. So to whom is he writing? He's writing to Christians whom he describes as exiles or strangers, sojourners, and so forth. The word in the Greek is peripitomoi. According to Dr. Edwin Blum, this word peripitomoi, strangers in the world, quote, points to the fact that Christians are pilgrims who do not reside permanently. If you're a pilgrim, you don't have permanent citizenship or residency where you are, where you are a pilgrim at. And so, dear ones, we Christians are described here as strangers, sojourners, pilgrims, 
and exiles in this world. None of us likes to feel out of place. None of us likes to feel like we're on the outside, we're on the margins, that we don't belong. But oftentimes in this world, we as God's people will feel that way. We'll feel like, I don't really quite fit in. I I, I feel like an outsider. But that shouldn't surprise you, shouldn't surprise us. Because our fundamental identity as God's people is that we are, yes, we are in the world, but we are not of this world. We are of the age that is yet to come. And so we are going to be and feel out of place in this world because we are sojourners, pilgrims, and exiles in this world. The church of Jesus Christ is the pilgrim people of God, aliens and exiles in this present fallen world order. The Greek word here gives the sense of a person who was in a strange land and whose thoughts are ever turned homeward. If you find yourself in a strange land, a foreign land that is not your home, you might often find yourself feeling homesick. And I imagine, brothers and sisters, if if you know Christ as your Savior, you ever get homesick for heaven? You feel out of place. You long for your true homeland. That is because you are a pilgrim, an exile, a sojourner in this present world. To fully appreciate the significance of this description of God's people, it helps to understand some facts about the setting of, first, uh, of Peter's first epistle and those to whom he is writing. As I've already mentioned, Peter wrote this epistle to Christians who were either suffering persecution for their faith or who faced the imminent possibility of serious persecution for their faith. Now, persecution in the early church was, was often localized and spasmodic and, uh, and not always, you know, sometimes it was, it was uh, more heightened and organized, but other times it was, uh, it was more uh, localized and so forth. But nevertheless, in the early church, Christians often lived their lives with the possibility that at any moment hostilities could rise up and you could find yourself uh, dragged before the officials, you could find yourself killed at any moment. Things might be going along smoothly, life might be going on as usual, and some incident might occur which raises the ire and the hostilities of your pagan neighbors uh, against you. So they lived their lives day by day like that. They faced the possibility of severe persecution for their faith. So Peter wrote this epistle in order to encourage them to stand firm in their faith, even as they faced the fiery trials of persecution. From verse 1, it is clear that the original readers of 1 Peter were situated over a large area north of the Taurus Mountains in what is today known as Turkey. It's interesting, the order in which Peter mentions these five Roman provinces or areas, that is, as you read in verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, the, the order in which Peter mentions these regions may well indicate the route that was taken uh, by the one who was assigned to carry Peter's letter to uh, the churches located in these various regions. And uh, who was it that might have done that? You know, it might have been Paul's missionary companion, Silas. Uh, His longer name was Silvanus, but it's possible that Paul's missionary companion Silas, or Silvanus as his name is sometimes given, 
may have been the one who delivered this letter to the various churches, since his name is mentioned here in 1 Peter in chapter 5, verse 12, as Peter's secretary in composing this letter. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, at the end of this letter, Peter says this. He says, by Silvanus, which again is the longer name for Silas, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. That was very common uh, for people to use secretaries back then. And by the way, as an aside, um, Peter's authorship of this epistle uh, in the history of the church was never seriously questioned up until more recent times in in the post-Enlightenment era where some critical and liberal Bible scholars said, well, Peter was a simple Galilean fisherman. Certainly he could not have used such sophisticated Greek. Uh, And if you you know the Greek, uh, 1 Peter is indeed written in educated, sophisticated uh, Greek. And so how could a simple fisherman use such Greek? Well, the answer to that question is very likely found in chapter 5, verse 12, where Peter used Silvanus, or Silas, uh, as his secretary. And and so Peter communicated to to Silvanus and what he wanted to communicate. Silvanus uh, cleaned it up, and then Peter read over it and gave it his final approval. That's probably what what happened, and that explains the sophisticated uh, Greek that we find here in 1 Peter. But in any case... There are indications here in Peter's epistle that most of the original readers of this letter were Christians who had been converted to Christ from out of a background of pagan idolatry. And therefore, most of the original recipients of this epistle were likely Gentile Christians. Now, while Jewish Christians in the early church often faced great difficulties from their fellow Jews, including uh, overt persecution, Certainly, it was no less difficult for Gentile Christians coming to faith in Christ from a pagan background. They faced difficulties as well. The Bible commentator Norman Hillier discusses some of these difficulties which were faced by those who had been converted to Christ from out of a pagan background. Hillier writes, The ancient world took it for granted that religion, that is paganism, permeated the whole of society. So for Christians to refuse to take part in pagan practices meant their being ostracized. In particular, many trades and professions involved paganism, and that made employment for Christians doubly difficult. Such everyday problems facing believers living among uncomprehending and scandalized pagan neighbors are ample explanation of the references to suffering in this letter. Persecution was localized and spasmodic, even if unpleasant at best. So I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these first century Gentile Christians who had come to faith in Christ from out of a pagan background, and some of them uh, perhaps continued to have uh, uh, unbelieving spouses, or they worked in trades where they daily rubbed shoulders with unbelievers that that placed expectations upon them that uh, you will participate in this pagan ritual or what have you, and they faced all of these pressures. Think about how discouraging and frustrating it must have been for many of these believers to live in that context. How out of place they must have been made to feel by their pagan neighbors and employers and sometimes even family members. How tempting it must have been to go back to their former pagan practices 
so that they could live comfortably in this present world. No wonder Peter begins his epistle by reminding them of their identity as pilgrims, exiles, strangers in this world. It's as if, as Peter opens up this letter, he's saying to them, look, I know things are tough, but remember, remember that we are pilgrims in this present world. We are exiles. We are sojourners. This world is not our final home. So that brings me to my next point, and really my final point as we, as we consider this, these opening verses, and we're going to come back to this passage because there's so much jam-packed here in these opening two verses of 1 Peter that I can't possibly cover it all uh, this evening unless you want me to pull an Apostle Paul uh, move and, and preach until midnight, but I suspect that that uh, would not be appreciated. But in any case, let's consider the significance of being God's pilgrim people in this present world. Again, Peter writes this to those who are elect, meaning chosen, exiles of the dispersion. What a way to describe us. Uh, the, the Jews of the dispersion uh, were, this word dispersion was often used to reference God's people, the Jews, who were dispersed among the Gentile nations. But Peter applies this to the Christian church, that we are scattered abroad among various nations and regions. This has such uh, important significance for us. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, how significant it is that God calls us pilgrims, sojourners, exiles. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are pilgrims in this present world. This world is not our final home, though we reside here for the time being. God's Word teaches us that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, which is our true and final homeland. We are strangers living in a strange land. We are a peculiar people, foreigners in a world of darkness and unbelief. Our true home is the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells and where Christ has secured an imperishable inheritance for us. As Peter goes on to say uh, in verse, uh, verse 3 and 4, Peter says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, we've been raised up to newness of life. We've been born again to an inheritance that is what? Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, what words of glorious resurrection hope Peter conveys here in those verses. Indeed, Christ has secured for us an imperishable inheritance. Now, there are many practical implications from these truths, but allow me to just mention a few as we close our time in the Word this evening. First of all, brothers and sisters, since we are pilgrims, we are to be fundamentally different from the unbelieving world around us. That means we are to be distinct. We are to be set apart. We are, in other words, to be holy. God has called us to be holy. And the word holy in the scriptures, yes, it, it carries to, to some extent the, the idea of, of ethical righteousness and so forth. But the primary 
sense of that word is to be set apart, to be different, to be distinct. God has called us to be holy even as he himself is holy. If you skip down to verses 14 through 16, Peter brings this out later on in this chapter where he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, According to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Friends, we are to live otherworldly lives in this present age. The spiritual aroma of our lives should be the aroma of heaven. Now, this, of course, this does not mean that we should withdraw from the world, that we should go out of the world and seek to live monastic-style lives. But it does mean that we should seek to live as those who are in the world, but not of us, though, not of it. Those who are, uh, are engaged here in the present, but, but engaged in such a way that we recognize this is not our permanent home. Also, as pilgrims who are called to be a holy people, we should seek to embody the antithesis in our thinking and in our living. We are called in Scripture in places like Romans 12 not to be conformed to this present evil world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That is to say, our thinking and our living must be fundamentally different from, antithetical to, the thinking and living of the unsaved and worldly-minded. And again, this does not mean that we go off and live like the Amish. This does not mean that we live like monks or nuns. But this does mean that we should seek to conform every area of our lives to the requirements of God's Word and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. As those who are in union with Christ, called to be pilgrims and sojourners in this present world, the Spirit can give us the grace Uh, to do so in union with Christ. Also, as pilgrims of Christ, we must not be surprised by the trials and persecutions that may come our way because of our pilgrim way of life. And I think that's especially something that we here in America need to be challenged with. Let's face it, brothers and sisters, we have it, comparatively speaking, we have it really good in this country. We have religious liberty, And yes, I know that in our culture there's increasing hostility towards the church of Jesus Christ and, and, you know, we, and perhaps persecution may be coming down the pike. I don't know. I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. But I think we need to prepare ourselves, fortify ourselves, equip ourselves for the possibility that persecution may be coming at some point in time. We need to be ready for that. And if and when it does come, We shouldn't be surprised, like, what's going on? You see, brothers and sisters, suffering for Christ and living under the pressures of persecution, this is the norm. This has always been the norm for the faithful people of God throughout church history. And it is the norm for many of our brothers and sisters living in other parts of the world where it isn't quite so easy to confess faith in and show love for Jesus and worship and serve Jesus as Lord. So like the apostles and the early Christians, 
Let us consider it a privilege if we are called upon to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. There is no greater name and there is no higher cause. Remember the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes where he says in Matthew 5 verses uh, 10 through 12, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus does not mean that, hey, you should go out and search for persecution. He's not saying, hey, you should enjoy persecution. Persecution is not enjoyable. But if you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, truly blessed. He goes on to say, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because it's fun to be persecuted? No. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Beloved, since we are a pilgrim people, let us remember that we are called to live our lives with an eternal perspective. Let us beware of becoming too attached to the things of this world. And and again, this is not a call to be Gnostic uh, or to be ascetics. While the created order is indeed good by virtue of being created by a good and holy God, and while we can indeed receive the good gifts of this present life with thanksgiving to God in our hearts, and we ought to receive these good gifts, as we did this afternoon at the fellowship meal, we enjoyed wonderful food and fellowship together. These are the good gifts of God, and we can enjoy them with thanksgiving without feeling guilty. But nevertheless, at the same time, we must keep our minds fixed on the things of eternity. Again, remember the words of the Apostle Paul in, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes in that passage, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. Beloved, let us remember that our ultimate identity is found in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ and in our belonging together to the pilgrim the community of Christ in the church may god grant us the grace to live as his pilgrim people in this present age dear listener do you have the assurance that you belong to god's pilgrim people god in the gospel calls you and me to repent of our sins and to put our faith and trust in the lord jesus christ christ who was crucified to make atonement for sin and raised from the dead so that whoever believes upon him might not perish but have everlasting life. Repent and believe the good news and then by the grace of God live as one of God's pilgrim people. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father.